Hello and welcome to the Farm One podcast. And I'm excited today to welcome uh, two folks from Burlap and Barrel. They're the two founders. It's Ethan and Ori. Uh, they're here on the farm. They're tasting things. They're telling us all about their products and their spices, where they get them from, how the company started, and how they do everything that they do. So I'm really excited to welcome you here today. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Ori. How are you doing? We're doing well. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great. Good to have you. And so let's start off like with a little bit of background on you folks. And and because obviously everyone's got a kind of food journey and everyone's got a way that they got into their companies. And I'm really curious, like what are your earliest food memories that sort of formulated how you think about food? Well, you know, I, I think that like I think for myself, like I grew up with food, like food being a sacred time, you know, mealtime was a time where everything else was set aside, where we come together as a family, where we share food, we talk about our day. And it just so happens that my parents, I was born in Israel, grew up, you know, there, then moved to Baltimore when I was a little kid. But we still kind of were like a little unit, even in Baltimore, experiencing America and all that while eating Middle Eastern food and all that. And it was like still this very special time to talk about what we saw and what we learned and what crazy idioms we learned about. And like, we're just slowly, slowly getting to understand how things worked here in America. And that was always done over the mealtime. And that was a really beautiful time that we shared as a family. And I think from there, food kind of became a big part of my day and, and time that, that I look forward to is that kind of mealtime to be able to share and discuss and review and do everything else that we do over the dinner table. Yeah. And then we, we really developed our friendship through food, over food, around food. I was, uh, running a semi-legal supper club out of my apartment in Chinatown. This was going back 12 or more years ago. And we had some mutual friends already started coming over for dinner. We we just hit it off. Uh, when I was working in restaurants, he would come hang out at the end of the shift and we would make a meal in the kitchen after things had closed. And and eventually we we came together to start, Burla, uh, start Gorilla Ice Cream, which was our first business together, an activist ice cream cart in summer of 2010 short-lived but a lot of fun um yeah ethan was cooking incredible foods you go down to the markets in chinatown and like just pick up all these ingredients and make these incredible over-the-top meals and i was like i don't know who this guy is but i got to get a seat at the table whenever he was cooking and we kind of ended up you know developing kicking ideas around and talking through that that ultimately led to to the grill ice cream which in the summer of 2010 we pushed an ice cream cart around the streets of new york ending up at hester street fair and we would sell ice cream and survive political movements and revolutions from around the world. And we had these crazy flavors like the Libre Tassau, which was 72% dark chocolate and port wine topped with cashews and brulee bananas, named after the pro-democracy movement in Guinea-Bissau. And every week we do new flavors. Ethan was working out of a kitchen in Chinatown um, and whipping stuff up. I would get off of work from advertising and join him down there slicing and freezing bananas, mixing stuff, whatever it was. And we had a lot of fun. It was really crazy. And we, we donated our profits to charity to the Street Vending Project, which was a street vendor advocacy group, a nonprofit. And and so it was kind of full circle being a street vendor, pulling these flavors from all over the world. And it was really our first time cutting our teeth as, as a social enterprise and trying to think about how does food have impact? What's the story that food tell? And, and getting a chance to practice that every single weekend in the markets of New York. Amazing. Wow, that's quite the segue. And, and so now... Burlap and Barrel. Tell us about that. What is Burlap and Barrel? Uh, why did you start the company? So we are a single origin spice company, a public benefit corporation, which is a hybrid for-profit, nonprofit, essentially a, a legally enshrined social enterprise. 
Uh, we work with smallholder spice farms all around the world. Most of our partner farmers have never exported before. So we set them up to export with FDA registrations and food safety testing and all the other important and complicated elements of importing food to the U.S. for the first time. And then we supply those spices to home cooks across the country, restaurant chefs, uh, breweries, bakeries, salad dressing companies, kind of you name it. Um, we've seen this supply chain revolution happen in coffee and tea and chocolate, all these other agricultural products, seen consumers, whether professional cooks or, or home cooks, understand the importance of the supply chain, the importance of sourcing, the variety that, that you have access to when you can source from a smallholder farmer, uh, from somebody who's really knowledgeable and passionate about what they do. But, but uh, before we started the company, we hadn't really seen anybody doing it in spices. Um, my After Gorilla Ice Cream, I, I had moved to London to go to grad school to be an aid worker, moved to Afghanistan, where I lived for uh, about two and a half years. Um, and uh, it was really through my work in Afghanistan. I, I was uh, spending a lot of time in this remote rural province way up in the northeast of the country, uh, an area that's famous for its cumin that grows wild in the mountains. Uh, everybody in Afghanistan knows that's the best cumin, uh, but it really had never been exported before. Um, and so I started doing a little bit of what we call suitcase exporting. Uh, <laughs> and sharing it with friends in the restaurant industry in New York, brought some to Orient San Francisco. Uh, and, and I had been kind of kicking around this idea, but it was really sort of sitting down with Ori to, that coalesced it into like this, there is a business here, this, this could be something. Yeah, Ethan had flown to San Francisco and we sat in the kitchen of Nopa, one, one of my favorite restaurants there. And the chef had given us an audience and Ethan started pulling out spices out of his backpack you know, cinnamon from Zanzibar, cumin from Afghanistan, cardamom from Guatemala. And slowly the kitchen started emptying out as all the chefs, all the cooks came out to see and taste and hear. And what we saw is that even cooks that, that knew, even professional chefs that said, this is where my beef comes from. This is where my produce comes from. This is a farmer that grows it. We said, what about your cinnamon? And they said, I, I don't know. And so he said, well, look, I didn't even know it came from a farm. Right. This is the guy that grew it. It's tree bark, by the way. Those peppercorns you got in your hand grow in bunches on a climbing vine like grapes. Like and, and that kind of their, their eyes lit up with that and, and they loved it. And that was such a cool moment to, to see that, that there was an opportunity for this. And so why do you think that was the case with spices? Because as you were you know, alluding to, you know, there's a badge of honor for chefs really to say, I do know where my food comes from, whether it's, you know, meat or whether it's like produce and, and the idea of farm to table and everything like that. Why, why did spices sort of escape that? Why was that one of the last things for that to kind of happen with? Uh, it's a long answer, but it goes all the way back to sort of the origins of the spice trade where the, the system has always going back 4,000, 5,000 years. The system has always been one of of a supply chain with with links where one person hands the product off to somebody else who hands it off to somebody else, hands it off to somebody else. Um, these days, the commodity market is structured very similarly. A farmer sells to a truck driver who sells to a local buyer, a consolidator, somebody with a small warehouse who sells on to somebody with a bigger warehouse or a bigger truck. Um, and so sp spices will change hands easily a dozen times before they leave the country of origin. Mm. Um, and, and going further back, you know, to the origins of the spice trade, uh, there were real financial incentives to keep your sources hidden. Um, if, if somebody could figure out where your cinnamon was coming from, they could go around you and, and cut you out of the market. And so traders would make up these crazy stories. Uh, one of the one of my favorites is um, 
that black pepper vines were guarded by fire-breathing dragons. And so the reason that there was black pepper and white pepper, so the white pepper was what it was supposed to look like, and the black pepper was what it had looked like after the fire-breathing dragon had charred it with its breath. Uh, but I think that's true, are, isn't it? That, that's yeah, the, completely, yeah. 100%. Okay. We're exactly. here to tell you that that is exactly how our black peppercorns are produced <laughs> Protected <today>. by fire-breathing <laughs> dragons. Good, good. Okay. Uh, but so, that disincentivi disincentivizes you yeah. from going out and figuring it out yourself. If you're like, hey, I want to figure this out, but I got to get past this dragon, you're less likely to go and, and try to figure it out for yourself and find ways around it. And so, the, commodity I, mar the commodity market today still operates on a very similar mentality. Yeah. They don't want anybody to go around them. Yeah. The history of the spice trade is is a history of monopolies built and broken, and the the current monopoly is ready to be broken. I so what? But what makes Ethan and Ori a capable team to break it? Uh, like you know, because nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> um, well, some of the big changes recently in the past, like decade, let's say. Yeah. I mean, farmers have high speed internet. They have you know mobile phones. You know, they're able to kind of th this connection before you had to have many, many people aggregating things up and up and up until finally it was at a quantity that a buyer in the U.S. could be like, okay, now I have enough to import in these massive quantities. It's worth my time to make this transaction. Mm -hmm. I can make some money on it. And then I can kind of break it down and do the reverse of that process once it comes into the U.S. Yeah. Uh, we're in steady. There's all these incredible entrepreneurial farmers that are growing spices at a quality um, and at, at a, in ways that are regenerative, that are organic. Um, that, that the commodity market often isn't willing to pay for, doesn't especially care about. Yeah. And so there's been a, a really big change that like farmers will message Ethan on WhatsApp and say, hey, I heard you're looking for spices. I grow nutmeg. <laughs> Do you want some? And so like the, 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 this communication has never existed before. And people always talk about blockchain and crypto and all this and, and crazy algorithms. And it's like, no, it's Facebook Messenger and Google Translate that's enabled the, the revolution. That's super powerful. I mean, it's sort of like that uh, ideal of like perfect information, right, in the market and perfect access. And, and once you have that, and also obviously global shipping that has become, I guess, easier and easier over time, you start to be in a situation where, yeah, you can do this. But I, but I, there's also something, right, that it's not like you're going to get a message on WhatsApp from a random farmer unless you're already in that business, you know the connections, you're happy to travel and you're happy to discover, like, there's some element there, right? So is, is that, Ethan, is that sort of your background in terms of being in all these different countries and being capable of kind of stepping into the unknown? Is it that kind of thing that's given you that advantage? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things. You're absolutely right. Most farmers are not a fit for us for one reason or another. We look for a very high quality, something that really stands out. And, and the truth is that most farmers are not growing something like that because they've never been incentivized to do it. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, is what you're asking about uh, our backgrounds uh, that have put us in a position to be able to do this. Um, my experience in restaurant kitchens, my experience working in international development, spending time with uh, rural communities in Afghanistan and Kenya and Indonesia and other places, um, Ori's background in, in marketing and advertising, but then really in startup operations, taking an idea from zero to what number are we at? I don't know. Some number, <laughs> zero to one, zero to 10. <laughs> Uh, five, <laughs> and and that's 
and that's why we do this together because we have very different and complementary skill sets cool. that have sort of And I can well. tell you on the sourcing side, I tag along to as many trips as I can. And obviously 2020 was not a year for traveling internationally. Yeah. Um, but what's been really interesting is just watching how much trust is a really critical component in that. So often yeah. the farmers are selling to their trusted sources that they have sold to, that their parents have sold to. Like, I think we're used to speed of business in the US. That's like like the cinnamon that we bring in from Vietnam is from trees that are 20 plus years old. That means that the earlier generation is often planting trees that the next generation will end up harvesting. And so that kind of lineage, that kind of like family run business uh, spans generations. And you're not going to just be like, oh, there's this thing over here. Let me go run after that. It really has to do with going to the farmers and meeting with them and sleeping on the floor of the farms and breaking bread with them and having a very different kind of conversation than a purely transactional one. Uh, we've even, some of the farmers that we met, we went to Vietnam in early 2019. And when we were there, some of the farmers, we said, has anybody else ever visited you? Any of your other buyers? And they were like, no, you're the first ones. And I think we were the first foreigners even that they were that they were engaging with in business. So totally different relationship. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, because I think a lot of us as consumers, we look at spices, they come in a jar. It's one of these things where you sort of have no idea, like you said, like what it originally looks like, but also sometimes like the volumes of original produce that have to be grown to create like one little gram of spice or one jar of spice can be sort of really outside of our conception. And, and like you said, you know, the fact that cinnamon is a bark, essentially, like a lot of people don't know that like the fact that. Um, I don't know, like the like the black earth chili that you have. Uh, do you have some in your pocket? You normally carry it around in your pocket. Do, do you? I have some in my pocket? Uh, we yeah, stash some in all the lab, the farm one lab coats. Yeah, it's part so, of the standard visiting protocol. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but like to be serious, like, do you want to maybe talk us through a couple of products like that? And like, what is it originally? What does it look like when it's grown? How does it kind of go through that whole process and get to us? And, and what are the sort of economics like for a small farmer in terms of, you know, the scale of their operations normally? How, how does that all sort of come together that might give us like a picture of how that works? Yeah. So most smallholder farmers grow for quantity, not for quality. That's what the commodity market is looking for. Um, so it's it's really about finding the farmers who are doing something different, who are approaching it with a level of skill and uh, sort of sensitivity. Um, often they want to be growing heirloom varieties, but the market hasn't paid them for any more for those kinds of things. So um, black pepper is a great example because it's something that people eat every single day and often don't even realize is a plant. As Ari mentioned, it's a climbing vine. So the there will be ideally a living tree that grows straight up and then you'll plant two or three pepper vines around it and they'll kind of circle their way up the vine. Uh, commodity farms will use concrete poles or, or you know, metal or something else to hold up the, the vine, but ideally it's a living tree. Um, and the pepper, uh, the, the pepper flowers grow on these little yellow stalks, tiny white flowers. They're pollinated by the rain. So a, a drop of water running down this little stalk pollinates the flowers. Uh, and then the peppers emerge looking very much like grapes. Um, they start out green and then turn yellow, orange, and ultimately red as they ripen. Uh, the vast majority of black pepper is harvested while it's still green. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, but it's the wrong way to do it. Uh, but it's easier and you can harvest more. So that's how most black peppers is picked. Uh, but really good black pepper is harvested at least halfway into the ripening process. Um, 
and then sun-dried and uh, actually dunked in boiling water first, pulled off the vine, dunked in boiling water. Um, the farmers we work with in Vietnam run it through a little machine that pulls the individual peppercorns off of the stalk. And each peppercorn is a, is a berry. Uh, so you have the fruit on the outside. That's yeah. what will wrinkle and turn dark when it dries, you know, sort of like a raisin. Um, and the, the inner part of the peppercorn is the white pit. Uh, that's where the the spiciness is, that like classic black pepper flavor um, and the, that sort of savory and, and other umami flavors come mostly from the, the skin, from the dried fruit. Um, yeah. And and so if, if you talk about a smallholder farmer, I think a lot of people might not know even what that means, like as opposed to another kind of farmer. What What is a smallholder farmer? What What is life for them as opposed to other types of farms? Yeah. A smallholder farmer is somebody who grows uh, a, a small quantity of whatever it is that they grow. Most farmers in most of the countries that we work with uh, grow two kinds of crops. They have their subsistence crops, um, the things they eat on a daily basis. In Vietnam, that might be a little bit of rice. It'll be veggies. Uh, they might raise chickens or, or other uh, birds. Um, and then the second crop that they grow is their, co- is their cash crop. So uh, in the case of pepper farmers, it's pepper or cardamom or uh, whatever is that they're growing to then sell. Um, smallholder farmers uh, tend to work their own land, maybe with a few employees or more likely family members or neighbors who help each other out. Um, they'll have a, a fairly small yield. I mean, it varies a lot, but um, for pepper, I don't know, about a ton of pepper a year, production of about a ton of pepper a year. Um, may sound like a lot, but for a farmer in Vietnam, you're going to make, I don't know, 50 cents per kilo if you're if you're lucky in a good year. So it's not a whole lot of money. Um, and that price is very volatile. So one year to the next, the price is going to be different. Uh, the price will be affected by things way beyond anything that you can predict or control. The weather halfway around the world is going to change the amount of money that you make because it'll shift the commodity market. So uh, it's very difficult for farmers to plan. Um, and so what we what we do is work with farmers well in advance, build the relationships that Ori was talking about, uh, discuss pricing sort of as, as far out as they need, pay down payments to cover uh, inputs at the beginning of the season, whether that's seeds or hiring, hiring people to help out on the farm, um, and then ultimately, hopefully, grow their capacity pretty significantly. So uh, just as an example, our, our partner farmers in Vietnam, we're talking about black pepper. They grow black pepper. And... Um, I don't know, the, when we met them, they were growing about a ton a year, a little less. Last year, they produced about a ton and a half, metric ton and a half. And then this year, they're going to produce close to three metric tons. Um, so they're making a lot more money uh, and they're able to grow like that because we're able to make those purchase commitments and we have a market f- for their pepper, which is exceptional and not hard to find good homes for here. Yeah. Great. And and so how do I mean, because obviously you're you're experts on this now. Right. But when you started, uh, I assume you weren't really an expert in all this, this kind of stuff. What was that process like for you, Ethan, and for you, Ori, like to sort of decide to go into this market to learn about it? And I think like one of the things that entrepreneurs often have as an asset is like naivety. Right. Because you think, oh, I can do this, (laughs) you know, and then you just decide to do it when someone who's a bit more experienced might you know, decide not to. Was that was a was that true of your story as well, or did you, you know, come into it with full research and knowledge and complete preparedness? How how did that all work? 
I, I think I, I personally like I learned about this kind of like one one shipment at a time, right? Ethan would be like, look at this, check this out. Here's what I got and taste it and all that. I think it was really helpful to kind of be like, well, what questions do I have? What do I need to know? Like we sell mostly online. And so the question is that like, what, what, what do I need to know as a consumer who can't hold, who can't smell, who can't taste this? What do I need to know for the story to know that these spices, what are they like? Will I like them? How should I use them? How were they grown? And so I think coming in as an outsider, you know, you go to the industry and Ethan went to the ASTA, American Spice Trading Association conference, and everyone's talking about like, global yields of commodity prices and there's 70 acronyms to describe every single thing. And we were like, what is this pepper? How is it different from the other pepper? How will I know that I like it? How, like, so like those kind of, kind of almost like naive questions, as you're saying, are actually really important towards figuring out how we build the site, how we describe it, how we talk about it, how we reach out to consumers and get their feedback. So I think that that was, you know, food safety isn't a thing that we say, I wonder what would be, it's like, no, that those parts of the business are very, very dialed in and we have support and consultants and follow all the standards for that. But a lot of things about how do we tell the story and how do we share spices with you that you may have never heard about before, or this variety you haven't come before. We even have to put on our packaging that you should start with half the quantity of regular spices that you'd use, just because these are so much closer to harvest, so much more potent, so much more delicious that oftentimes people will say, hey, my recipe tasted only like ginger and I used exactly what the recipe told me. And we're like, well, dial it back and then and then build up from there. So that's been really helpful to be outsiders. And we're learning and we're getting better and figuring it out as we go. And it's been a really fun, and interesting journey. Yeah. I mean, we each of us had experience and skills that have come to play in this business, uh, even though we were missing sort of that center part, um, the bullseye of the target we didn't have, but we had all the rings around it. Uh, my my experience in kitchens, I, I developed a really, uh, I don't know, a good palate. I can taste a lot of things. I have a good sense of how things are going to be, how things are going to taste in a dish when you cook with them. Um, I had the privilege of working with Chef Floyd Cardoz at Tabla many years ago and learned a lot about spices from him. Um, and then this sort of other half of my professional background, working in international development, I learned a lot about supporting uh, rural communities around the world um, in areas that had been marginalized or or intentionally excluded from international systems. Uh, you know, the, the model of international development has been to fund projects in communities. And I, I saw that happen poorly in a lot of places, poorly implemented, wasted money. I mean, this isn't news to anybody. Uh, and came to this realization that maybe the best way to support people was just to pay them, just to give them money for things that they were already doing and already doing well. Um, and so those experiences very much influenced the direction and, and early sort of concept that became Burlap and Barrel. Yeah. And so, I mean, tell me a little bit about, you know, you talk about international development and talk about trying to help people going wrong and then entering into a commercial relationship with someone being a more effective route. Like what, what are the, some examples of things that you've seen going wrong and, and what are some ways that a commercial relationship is better and, and can be better for those folks? Yeah. I mean, the part of the problem that underlies a lot of international development, I think this is changing. I think people are realizing that this is not the best way to approach it, but, but the system still exists. Um, it, it's a very sort of colonial or neo or post-colonial mindset. Uh, us coming in from the outside, telling you how to do things, knowing what's better um, when, I mean, it's not rocket science. People know what to 
do for themselves. They know what they need. Uh, they know what what the steps might be to improve their situation in whatever way they they decide to. Um, and and so that's been the the sort of development aspect of, of our work or the impact side of Burlap and Barrel, finding farmers who are doing things uh, in a in a regenerative, sustainable, organic way, uh, often who who have a very close eye on their own cultural and, and culinary histories, trying to maintain heirloom varieties that are lower yield or the commodity market isn't looking for, that they haven't found customers for, but they're committed to growing them in that way. Often the methods that they're using, the agricultural methods, have have real grounding in in tradition. Um, you know, in in India they use uh, cow urine to to fertilize the fields, um, you know, a tradition that goes back many thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. Um, and so uh, finding those people who are, who are passionate and deeply knowledgeable of what they do, the thing that they miss is, is the customer, is, is access to that last leg of the supply chain. Often we meet farmers, we show up on the farm, kind of do our pitch, our song and dance, this is what we're about, this is what we'd like to do with you. And they go, what the hell took you so long to get here? We've been thinking about this for 15 years and we just had never found an import partner, had never found somebody at the other end of the supply chain. So finding those people, paying them a whole lot of money for their crop, you know, anywhere between two and sometimes up to 20 times what they'd make selling it into the commodity market. Um, and then setting them up to grow pretty significantly, uh, and and what we've seen is is a powerful ripple effect as well. That one farmer doing that, uh, you know, suddenly all their neighbors take notice. They see this trend. They realize they could be making more money, um, and then they want to get in on it too. So so that's what we do in Guatemala. We started working out with we started out working with one farmer, uh, and he he is he was so already sort of a community leader. Uh, and has brought on several of his neighbors to work with us as well. Um, we're looking at doing similar things in other places where we want to expand, we want to buy more, um, and we just need the farmers to supply It's us. happened in, in India also mm -hmm. with our turmeric farmer, partner farmer there. It's happened in Zanzibar where the co-op has expanded by about a quarter in yeah. terms of bringing new farmers in. We're seeing it happen again and again, and I think that's one of the encouraging parts of, of all of this is that we have these kind of... Um, entrepreneurial farmers. And there's a similar archetype in every country of a farmer that's like, I want to do things better. The commodity price doesn't understand that my spices are so much better um, and, and I'm ready to have a partner. And we often, we talk and we publish our impact report every year on our site, talking about how we made progress, how much payments we made, how much spices we sourced, some case studies about specific farmers that we worked with. Um, and time and time again, we're like, what can we do to best support you? And they're like, buy more, keep growing. And we're like, OK, we're going to do our best. And that's the other side of it, just to figure out how, to, how we grow the business and how we kind of share that story with American cooks, both home and professional, to get them really excited about the spices and to really point out the differences and what makes this so special and why it matters with what you're cooking with. Yeah. And so you talked a little bit about, you know, the harvest point uh, when you harvest um, for peppers, for instance, or or black pepper, um, and that making a difference in quality, for instance. And there's some other, you know, because you talk quite a lot about good spices versus not so good spices and how powerful they might be. What are like some other examples of different spices and, and a good way of growing versus a not so good way of growing? And and why does that kind of happen? What are the pressures on farmers to, to make them grow in kind of less flavorful ways? Yeah, I just, from my, at, at a high level, when we ask farmers about like the other buyers, right? Who are the people that are just coming by that come by like that you're trying to, to, to kind of, that we're working with in a different way. Oftentimes there's meaningful price pressure of saying, here's the price, 
it went down by X cents since last time. Uh, there's often uh, kind of a pressure on kind of consistency versus like, like we talk about the seasonality of spices, right? Like ma many of the spices are harvested once, maybe twice a year. So we get the new harvest and that gets sold out. But usually what ends up happening is farmers will sell to somebody with a pickup truck who buys from many farmers, who sells to a warehouse and all that. So, so there's pressure on price to cut corners. There's pressure to pick early because when things are at their ripest, as we know with our own fruits and vegetables, they're more likely to bruise. They're more likely to, the birds will find them delicious. It's a little bit harder and more nuanced to keep them from going just the right without molding, without being overripe. And so it's a lot, it's a little bit easier. You have a hardier product when it's picked underripe. If you're getting paid less or you're kind of like the money's, is, there's pressure on that, then you're going to be incentivized to find ways to do it more cheaply. Um, and I think that in general, like when was the last time that you, that, that somebody was like, we don't have black pepper right now, it's out of season. Like that is, that is the opposite of what the industry has been set up for. And so what ends up happening is even once it leaves the farms, it gets stockpiled at various places. Or as Ethan was mentioning, like there's a great pepper harvest in, in Brazil. So the pepper price in, in Vietnam is going to go down because there's too much on the market. As with any natural product, there's good harvest, there's bad harvest and prices fluctuate. So maybe there's a really low price one year. So you're not going to sell. You're going to wait until the next year. And so there are various stockpiling steps along the way that just mean that the spices that you got maybe came from five countries, maybe came from thousands of farmers, maybe came from a handful of harvest of years. And so what you get is this like real average. And, and by average, I mean, not not in a you know good way. You get the, the kind of lowest common denominator of what everything kind of like averages out to among good farmers, bad farmers, different harvests, different years. And, and nobody's gotten really excited about a truly average product. Yeah, it's it's the difference between eating a crappy apple from the supermarket that's covered in wax and has been sitting around in a shipping container for months or picking an apple off a tree, getting an apple from a local orchard. There, it's it's night and day. It's uh, there's there's the good version and there's the commodity version. And there just really has never been the good version available uh, for spices before. And so, you know, talking about that, that that instantly makes me think, okay, well then that creates a lot of pressure on you guys because, you know, if there's a bad harvest for cinnamon, you know, with your local farmer one year, what do you do? And and so how do you as a business kind of deal with that sort of fluctuation and, uh, and all that kind of that pressure? So one of the things that we celebrate is the diversity of different spices, the terroir. So black pepper grown in Zanzibar versus black pepper grown in Vietnam, uh, they're gonna taste different as, as any plant would grown in two different places. Um, it also gives us as a business a little bit of a fallback so that if Zanzibar has a bad harvest, which actually is what is happening right now, the <laughs> rainy season came very late. So the harvest season is, is now coming about two months late. Mm. Um, we are lucky to have another black pepper, an exceptional black pepper from Vietnam so that we keep black pepper in stock uh and and can maintain relationships with both growers yeah um and there's a big it's again this element of trust where like oftentimes the farmers will be like listen it's a really tough harvest this year i think we're going to get the best out of early on in the harvest is that what we should bring to you like ideally if we're in a good partnership with them and we have a high level of trust between us then we'll be their favorite customer and then they'll come to us and say hey i got some i got some really good stuff like and i want i want to work with you on it and so that's also part of how this goes is if they see us coming back year over year and growing and paying well above the commodity market, we're going to be the first call that they get. 
But we've also seen the opposite is what we ask them for is we want to be the first call when we know that a bad harvest is coming up. And let's talk about what we can do and how we can go around it. We've actually had a handful of conversations with farmers about their concern about the weather pattern and overall global warming Mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, my God, it's 20 degrees Celsius, you know, and when it should be the middle of the winter, what's happening? And so they're all trying to think about because you can't just pick up and move a farm. And so they're also thinking very deeply about that. and, And how do you kind of make sure that? They can keep their livelihoods going, keep growing in the ways that they have for generations, um, even as the weather changes. Yeah, it's really interesting. And and I guess I'm really curious, like how you've sort of built up this global network, because, of course, you were talking about your experiences, Ethan, with cumin, right? And starting out with like one spice from one area. And I'm guessing, you know, there was that that was sort of an informal process and you start to work with farmers and you start to learn how to do that. But it seems now like you've got this kind of playbook that you can apply whether you're in Zanzibar or Vietnam or uh, somewhere else. Like, what, how, is, how have you sort of built up that playbook and, and what is different about working with uh, smallholders in an African country versus an Asian country? Or are there common things that you can do that kind of make sure that's a good relationship for everybody and, and helps the farmer in the way that you want to? Yeah, yeah, I love this question. Uh, it, it feels sort of like asking a chef how do you cook so many different dishes? They're all so different. This one is fish and this one is meat and this one has this spice or this sauce. I mean, uh, the, the fundamental, the, you know, the fundamental, the foundation of any of those conversations is, as Ari mentioned, trust. It doesn't really matter what language any of us is speaking, where we're coming from. We're all entrepreneurs. We're all small business owners trying to figure this out. Uh, we're aligned in our values, wanting to grow interesting ingredients and share them with people who will appreciate them. Um, and and really, the the rise of technology, pretty basic technology from Facebook to WhatsApp to um, being able to have a, a video call, um, that has really opened this up. So we we meet a lot of farmers in person, working through NGOs or or other nonprofits that support farmers. Um, through local governments in many cases, a Ministry of Agriculture, a Ministry of Foreign Affairs. People will show us around, uh, introduce us to farmers who they think might be a fit. But more and more, especially the past year, we've been meeting farmers on on social media, on yeah. Facebook, on Instagram. Um, a lot of farmers reaching out to us or, or more often the children of farmers reaching out to us. So we, we started sourcing a nutmeg, a new nutmeg from Grenada from the first time because... Um, the farmer's niece was stuck in Grenada during the lockdown, couldn't get home to London, started looking around on social media to, to see if there were ways that her aunt and uncle could could sell their nutmeg and found us. Uh, a very similar conversation with a young woman in Sri Lanka. Her father is a cinnamon farmer. She wound up back home on the farm, um, you know, during their lockdown, look, sort of watching how her father operated and the way the spice trade worked and realized that there had to be a better way. And so she found us on social media um, and more and more farmers are talking to each other. So there are huge uh, forums, conversations taking place on Facebook um, among young farmers in India and Vietnam and a lot of the countries that we source from comparing notes, swapping ideas, helping each other. Um, and so I'm in a whole bunch of those groups and I keep in touch with farmers and um, yeah, we've been able to put this this network together, cook a whole lot of different kinds of dishes with the same techniques, ingredients, yeah. pots and pans. I don't know something. I'm, the metaphor is yeah. Extended. No, and I get it. Even and even though that though now a lot of people are reaching out. I mean, in the early days, like there there would be like a thread. Like we knew somebody who was a excellent cook 
in New York, but that came from Vietnam. And you say, hey, does what does your family do? Like, where, like, do you know anyone? Do you have any connections? There was a international business development, foreign, whatever, that some an agent that was in charge of bringing in foreigners and doing local development in, in a region that grows spices. Like, it was a lot of like following the thread. Like now it's been really incredible to, to have established a name for ourselves as saying, we want to work with farmers like you, please reach out. But I mean, the early days I was even watching kind of Ethan run down these like, like pull it threads, you know, and, and, and eventually find and then still like going on a trip and meeting 10 farmers and nine of them, you ask like a handful of questions. When is it harvested? Why do you harvest it this way? Why do you grow it this way? And you ask a handful of those questions and either their eyes light up and they're like, let me tell you exactly. And really like, well, like, come, come with me to the field. I'll show you exactly. And this is the right way. And everybody else who tells you something different is insane, you know, <laughs> or they're like, you know, it's just it's just the same thing as everybody does. Well, what are these questions about? And like very quickly, farmers will go down one or two of those paths. Mm. And one is the farmer that really cares and is super thoughtful and is super involved and invested. And one is the farmer that's like, like curious about why we need to know and saying, no, thank you. That's not, that's not how I work. I don't work at this detail. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I guess, I mean, it sounds like you've been on dozens of these trips and I'm sure, yeah, obviously 2020 sort of put stop to a lot of that, but I'm, I'm interested, like what, what's some of the most sort of unusual things you've discovered and what, what are the things you've kind of learned by visiting these you know, pretty far flung random places that are a long way off the beaten trail where most tourists would go in a country. What's that like? The, the best, the best trip is like the third trip. Like, you know, there's a, it's a lot of fun to go to a country for the first time, meet people for the first time, sort of be exposed to food and culture and processes that you never tried before. But, uh, the most sort of satisfying trip is the return visit where you've been working together for a period of time. There's the, the trust that you established on that first visit has has grown and and solidified um, because then it's it's like spending time with old friends. It's like uh, you, you are brought into a community in a way that you can't really as an outsider, um, you know, people who we're in touch with on a regular basis, whether we're there in person or not. So so being in person is just. It, it really feels like getting back together with an old friend you haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. Um, even though we don't maybe know each other that well, not having much of a shared language or a shared experience, uh, we can, we can really relate. Um, but it, it's always, I mean, the trips are always schleppy. We're always like bouncing around on a bus or, you know, hours and hours up into the mountain. They're not glamorous. I think people sometimes have this misperception that we're having this glamorous life. It really is not. <laughs> Uh, three weeks in Vietnam in 2019, the trip that Ori was talking about earlier, I don't think we slept in the same bed two nights in a row. We were on the road the entire time. Yeah. yeah farming happens far away from urban centers. Typically, right. I know that we're sitting in this environment right now, <laughs> but oftentimes farming happens far away where there's lots of open land. And so getting there is a, is a, is a heavy duty trip. But then you get out of the car and you're inside of a cinnamon tree forest and you can smell the cinnamon from a mile away or I learned that in Spain, in Extremadura, in Western Spain, which is known for growing pimenton, the smoked paprika, um, they, they not only grow the paprika on the fields, but they'll smoke it in these kind of almost like open air smokehouses with kind of bricks. Every other brick is, is left missing so that the air can flow through it. But they also grow tobacco there as a major export. And so you're staying in a field, but it smells like a, like a cigar club, you know? Like it's just seeing all these really crazy places or stepping outside in Vietnam and seeing these giant trees these like super thin, you know, 30 feet tall trees with peppercorn vines just running straight up them and seeing those as far as your eye can see. 
it's just so interesting. It feels like a totally different world than, than you know, that I'd normally go on a trip. And yeah. it's, it's really fun and interesting to have that connection to the spices. That's so cool. And I guess, I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but it seems so different to like working in a restaurant kitchen where you have an intense job, but you're surrounded by pretty much the same people every day. And and I, I guess, Ori, in your marketing background as well, like not, you know, it's not about traveling everywhere all, all day, every day. And so how... Did you just discover that you both have the personality for this or is it just like you had no choice or did it call to you to go and travel to these places? How do you feel about it? Like emotionally, does it, how does it, how is it the best job I've ever, the best job I've ever had? Uh, well, I, I think. Cause what you described just now in terms of like the bus travel and the different beds and it, to some people, that's a nightmare. Like they just couldn't. Right. Is it good it, for know? our backs? Probably not, <laughs> but is it really interesting? And I think, I don't know for me, like I really, I really liked how Ethan and I worked together from our grill ice cream days. Like that was a really fun, like trial run of how do we work together? Do we complete each other's sentences? Who's going to say sandwiches. sandwiches? Okay. We were both going to say sandwiches. <laughs> that's an arrested development joke. I apologize. Okay. Um, no, but it was kind of like, I think, I think so many, like we spent so much time together and really trying to find a complementary relationship with us having really different areas of expertise with us often having different views of, of like different paths to get to the same conclusion. You know, we're like, you know, we'll talk about it, which spices are missing. What, what do we need to add to the lineup or something like that? And like Ethan will go one way and say, I think based on chefs and this, what I've written, and then I'll go in and I'll run down like the top 20 spices that are being sold and where we, you know, like, but we'll, we'll get to the similar places with what we're missing and how we want to grow. And so I don't know, like we spend more time with each other than, than I think and anyone else. My wife. Right. Right. And I spend a fair amount of time also with, with Ethan's wife because we work from each other's <laughs> homes right. now. Like, you know, like it's really full on and that level of intensity, like you either love it or you hate it. Yeah. And, and it's been really wonderful. And we found that we have really complementary skill sets to be able to come to decisions, to figure out how to run a business, to figure out how to grow, how to manage really limited resources, hours in the day, money, no team. Like we're, we've been really trying to, to find different ways to, to really stretch and have as big of an impact that we can through the work that we do. And so yeah. that's, I, I don't know, I always wanted to work in food in one way or another. My background was never in food. So this to me feels like a little bit of a hack to, to get into it, to kind of do more of the business side of it. Well, and you're definitely really in food now, like like it or yeah. not, that's happened, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, tell us a bit more. I mean, obviously starting any company is tough, right? And I just imagine starting this kind of company, you know, first of all, like travel isn't cheap, right? And then going on expeditions to try to find farmers, which I'm sure sometimes it doesn't work out, right? Like you end up somewhere and there's, there's kind of nothing. Well, hopefully it works out. Hopefully we it haven't works had out. a trip that was a total failure. We, all, <laughs> we always found some way to uh, make it work. I mean, travel... Yeah. Well, go ahead. This is your answer. You no, no, no. I, I think I think it's exact. I think everyone. I think the same way that you're talking about it. Like everyone says, how do you travel everywhere? And it's like, well, we're not traveling business class. We're not staying at, at you know five star hotels. Like honestly, for I'm us, not staying at two star hotels. We're not staying at any. <laughs> you know, like what? Oftentimes, like the trip for Vietnam, for example, we we're there for three weeks. The flight was like less than a thousand bucks, you know, to fly there. And then we're staying at places that are $15 a night, eating street food, staying with the farmers as often as we can. Like the all in investment for like a sourcing trip like that was really just a few thousand dollars. And what we got out of that is we, we brought back Royal Cinnamon, which has been our number one bestseller. And now we've ordered what? For like 15, 20 tons. Yeah, we've just been moving. Like it's it, the, the payoff for that has been so, so valuable to be able to travel and to go around the world. 
And I think we had a few like ideas kind of starting on. We kind of talked about saying, what, what would it take to make a spice business work? Mm. And one was we need a lot of spices, like different spices, right? <laughs> so that if you, spice. we need spices. No, like, so if you come to our site, we need to have like whatever, what did you run out of oregano? Okay, we got it. What do you run out? Garlic, sure. But while you're here, make sure you check out the cumin and make sure you check out the cinnamon. And so to have kind of enough to fill up your cart, and that kind of required going to, to different countries and different that. And so Ethan was on a lot of planes and, and I think that's his happy spot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. We also, uh, especially in the early days, we would carry home literally hundreds of pounds of spices on those trips um, that often, weirdly, it was cheaper to bring stuff to fly to Vietnam and carry stuff home yeah. than it was to do a shipment, especially in small quantities where you yeah. wind up paying a whole lot per kilo or whatever it is to ship. Yeah. Um, so, so the trips ultimately didn't cost very much, or in some cases we were actually able to make money based on what we were able to carry home. And uh, they were the start of a long-term relationship that has paid off in, in incredible ways. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. My, cool. my last company, in between Gorilla Ice Cream and Burlap and Barrel, I had started a venture-backed mortgage company, which is a whole other thing. And I don't know what the food to finance to food thing is. But I mean, what, what I saw often is like, you know, we raised money, we were spending more than we were making, you know, and all, all our investors were like, grow, 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 push revenue and this and that. And we made a few very important mistakes that meant that like, you know, we, we had to then cut back employees, delay payroll, hire the employees back. Like we just went on this crazy venture backed roller coaster. And, and I think a lot of the philosophy that helped inform how we did a broad and barrel venture capital is fine and, and is great and builds big companies really quickly. Totally right for that. We're working with spices that grow out of the ground that often have a once an annual harvest. 20 years to grow cinnamon tree. Right. And so what ended up happening is go to the country, show the customs official that you are carrying back 50 kilograms of cloves for good reason. And they look at you and scratch their head and say, I see no reason to knowledge you're on this plane. <laughs> um, and then bring it back and then selling those spices and then using that to buy the next batch of spices and really kind of going through this process again and again and again. And you know what, when, when we had a lot of resources at my last company, we had a lot of pressure to spend that. So we're like, oh, let's hire a marketing team. Let's hire this, let's hire that. And with Ralph and Barrel, we're like, we don't have any investors. So let's not pay ourselves salary. Let's register <laughs> Ethan's living room as a spice processing facility, which, we, which was the first the year. FDA <laughs> approved for um, some reason. And, and what that meant is that we had to really slow down. We really yeah. had to think about the product and the pricing and what we could afford and what we could bring in and how to structure it. We didn't have to invest in big machinery or anything like that. Yeah. We just kind of very slowly, kind of every iteration was a little bit bigger. And that ended up kind of creating a snowball effect. And, and that's, we're really grateful because it forced us to think really hard about some of those questions and plan and solve things in ways that we couldn't if we could afford <laughs> to solve them in better ways. No, I think that's great. And I, you know, to a certain extent, I think that a lot of people are sort of discovering that about VC money and about the startup ethos of like grow at any cost. And it, it, it does just encourage these different behaviors. And I think it, you know, part of the ethos of even like working in restaurants or working in other parts of the food service business, like, there isn't that much money around. And so people are creative and people rely much more on their own sort of relationships and intelligence and that kind of thing, rather than thinking like, yeah, I'll just buy my way out of this problem. And it's really cool to hear that you're doing that. And it's really inspiring to me as well, because I think that we see I, over the past few years, I think we've seen a lot of food uh, VC backed startups or, or startups that are like related to food that are not really about food. They're about delivery or they're about like point of sale or something like that. And so there's been a huge amount of money kind of going into, you know, agriculture and food and et cetera. But 
I think that you know a lot of those companies will will not succeed. A lot of that money will be wasted, and it's it's great to just to see what you're doing and and see people sort of thinking through and being creative about how to use that money. Um, well, and just to give you yeah. a funny example, like we always thought that our first customers would look a lot like us, probably live in cities, probably, you know, be people that are, I don't know, Instagramming their food, whatever. Like, you know, like really thoughtful. Are you, are you Instagramming your food? You know what? <laughs> you do occasionally Instagram. Occasionally. It, it most looks like it's not a crown blobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So but we just thought they'd be like city people that are like kind of very, very like thoughtful and reading everything, all the food news and like very, very connected to the kind of the culture and the scene and everything like that. And as we got our orders, we would email many, many, many of the early customers and say, hey, thanks for buying. How do you find us? What did you like? What didn't you like? What could we do better? We found out that our best, best customers were in their 50s or 60s or older. Uh, they they skewed female. They skewed outside of cities. Um, and then we were like, what's going on here? And we started digging into it. And what we understood is they're cooking three square meals at home while while the city folks are eating out. Prior, you know, prior to the pandemic. Right, right. <laughs> the pandemic changed everything. And we can talk about that. But like, really, they were they were cooking almost all their meals at home for themselves, for their significant other, for their families. They didn't have local specialty goods stores, so they were used to buying the ingredients mm. that they loved online. Mm. And so all of a sudden, this kind of changed how we thought about it. It changed the language, it changed the colors, it changed the text size and the button sizes and all that. And we started going after this kind of older consumer, knowing that that you know there are other people of other age groups, and like we want to have a broad appeal. But these people were the ones that saw us, even when we had a pretty wonky website, even when the spices were being hand packed in Ethan's apartment, <laughs> um, and they were saying, "Yes, that's for me." And yeah. oh my God, to have a customer that's willing to like take that risk and, and then say, that was amazing. I'm so glad it was a value that it was a handwritten label, right? Like that was really exciting to be able to find them. And with the pandemic that turned everything on its head and everybody's stuck at home and everybody's cooking at home and everybody's Googling spices. Yeah. So we kind of broadened our audience in a pretty meaningful way when everybody got stuck at home. That's so cool. And I'm, I'm interested because, you know, I remember Ethan, like the first time we talked about Burlap and Barrel, I mean, I'm guessing it was 2016, maybe 2017 or something. Is that I right? I think it was 2016. I don't think I had, I don't think we had officially started the company or it was very early days. Yeah. I was coming to you for advice on how to start a company. So <laughs> well, I guess we both did it. Yeah. And I guess at the time, you know, we were so, because we were at Farm One, we were so restaurant focused. And I guess you were restaurant focused as well, because I mean, that was sort of your network and that was your people. And I remember yeah. we were talking about what restaurants were using your product and, and, and actually, Ethan was going door to door. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, with the with a jacket full of spices. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and and so of course, you know, going into twenty twenty, I'm I'm sure I, I don't know what your revenue split was, like wholesale versus retail, but I know it's you about fifty you know, fifty. Yeah, it was pretty significant, right? And so, um, what did you do last year? That's an open ended question, but like, you know, how did you sort of react to that, well, and, and what did changed. you what did you do? Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, things changed in a pretty meaningful way. We went from being half-half, right? And even before that, we were even more heavily from restaurants because, I mean, Ethan's background and, and you know, how cool is it to have a chef say, this is incredible. Then we can go to Home Cooks and be like, hey, this chef said this is incredible. I think you'll like it too. Um, We've but what ended up having that, the pandemic. So it's not, <laughs> right. don't, don't diss it. <laughs> right. And so what's been, what was really crazy is in March, we had a little bit of like a, a, like a come to Jesus moment where we're like, oh my God, there's a global pandemic. All the restaurants are closed. Many of our farmers are in various states of lockdown. 
Like what happens if we have to close the business for six months? Like what happens if kind of like we didn't know everybody was operating with very limited information and we were just talking through like, let's 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 really dig into the worst case scenario. Let's really explore. And we have to figure out all these plans of saying, is this the end of the business or what happens if, if this is if this is how things go for the foreseeable future? And things did go that way. But what changed was that all of a sudden home cooks started Googling where to find they first bought beans and rice and flour for their home baked breads and banana breads. Um, and, and, you know, I think the grocery stores were really hit hard trying to keep like the staples in stock. And then when they ran out of paprika or garlic cooking those or, things, or when they realized they needed cinnamon for their banana bread and exactly. bay leaves for their beans. I mean, we really, we saw a spike in cinnamon and bay leaves right after everybody had bought beans and flour. <laughs> yeah, that, that's everybody was going through the same, I think, eating trends during the pandemic. Right, right. And the growing. speed with which you use up certain things, it's going to yeah, yeah, exactly. impact at different times. Yeah. And yeah. So, so that's how people ended up coming to us, because I think normally they would just go to their regular grocery stores and spices were an afterthought. They were just something that would be picked up along with other things, because it's 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 like the same people where salt is salt is salt. And now people are like, wait a second, there are different kinds of salt. And so so spices were just kind of an afterthought. And then everybody was at home and saying, well, it's very expensive to order, you know, spices for delivery from Amazon or whatever. Half my grocery stores is sold out anyways. The spice shelves were pretty barren. And so they ended up going online. And what do they find? They find a Bon Appetit article saying, hey, you should check the cinnamon out. They come to our site. They read about the farmers. They read about all these different things. And they're like, huh, I didn't know. And then they came in and, and do a little test order with us. And then the second and third orders you see being bigger and bigger. And so that's been really changed the way that we do our business. And we're able to talk to our customers, launch things in ways that we weren't able to launch. We recently had some uh, wild Pompona vanilla from Peru. We have more coming. And we had like, I don't know, you know, just a couple hundred, if that, of, of like beans. We launched them on our website. 15 minutes later, they were gone. So we're like, wait a second. We have to think about this in a different way. And so it's really both been exciting, but it's also challenged us to say, wait, you want you want stuff to be delivered within two days? Okay, what do we do? We don't want plastic in our packaging. How do we remove it? We don't want like all these things that are now now kind of new things of saying, how do we keep up that promise and keep convincing you that it is better to order spices online from Burlap and Barrel than going back to your ways when you can, when the supermarkets open back up and when you start shopping, you go back to your old routine when eventually, fingers crossed, that will happen again. Yeah. Okay. That was a strong pitch, man. I like it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lucky I'm not on the phone with you trying to sell me some spices because I would, I feel like I would leave with a $150 order, you know, that's no, good, man. And so I'm, I'm really curious, like, um, you know, because, well, to, to give the background, we're, we're giving uh, a surprise to our members and our members, you know, are, are keen cooks. They, they love cooking. They obviously use a fair amount of greens and stuff and they kind of know about different ingredients. And I think they're going to love uh, what we're giving them this week. And so I actually chose the black Urfa chili because actually it was it's one of my favorites. Yeah, you got it in the pocket there. Um, and I... I might be weird. I don't know, but but I use it. Um, the most sort of notable time I use it is I make this like vegan version of menemen, which is like a Turkish dish with like tomato, and then normally it's like a uh, egg kind of thing. But uh, I use it with like a silken tofu, and and the Urfa chili gives it a really sort of deep spice that you I don't I don't know how you would get it another way, but 
um i certainly love it and i, pro- I probably put like too much on because i put it in during the cooking i put Impossible. it in at the end you know yeah. um and my girlfriend cer- certainly loves it as well and it's something that really sort of entranced me because actually before you gave it i think you gave it to me originally ethan like a while ago and, yeah. um and i'd never even tried it before and so that was sort of exciting and um so that's a product that i know really well um i don't know if you want to say anything more about the uh, for chili sure go, yeah go for so it. uh I don't know. I'm going to start back thousands of years ago. The chilies are <laughs> native to the Americas. I mean, we're in a we're in a we're on a farm. Um, all chilies co- are, can be traced back to the the geography between uh, Mexico and Bolivia. Um, they made their way to Europe and then to the Middle East, uh, literally with Columbus. He, he, there was a botanist on board the ship who carried the first pepper seeds, chili pepper seeds, to Spain, um, and and they made their way to Turkey. And they've been a huge part of Middle Eastern cuisine writ large and, and Turkish cuisine in particular for uh, hundreds of years. Um, but but they don't have a history that goes back beyond that. So, I mean, in thinking about cuisines and flavors and how are people developing those those sort of taste profiles, um, a lot of that has happened fairly recently. Um, an Urfa chili is the same variety as an Aleppo pepper, which is sort of its better known cousin. Uh, Aleppo peppers are red, medium hot, pretty sweet usually sun-dried. And an Urfa chili, you start with the same pepper. It's, I don't know, about six inches long, something like that with a little elbow in it. Um, it's not a particularly hot pepper, although the, the membrane does have some heat, but heat is not the primary flavor. Um, the peppers are picked fresh, uh, chopped up, usually in the field or right nearby. Um, the seeds are removed and these strips of peppers are laid out on tarps, uh, on tarps and under tarps um, to sweat it's the desert. It's like 110 degrees in July and August when, when they're harvesting. Um, and because they're, they're under these sheets of, traditionally it would have been fabric, now it's mostly plastic, uh, they, they oxidize. They sort of roast in the heat. Um, they turn from red to this very deep red or orange, it looks black. Um, and then the last step is a stone grinding process with a little salt and oil to, to break them up and, and create not quite a paste texture, but but hold them together. Um, and that oxidation, that that uh, curing process brings out those flavors that you were talking about, that kind of deep, savory, raisin, coffee, malt uh, flavor profile. Um, and and there, are, there are analogs all around the world from soy sauce to miso to uh, mole, right? Lots of cuisines find ways to get at that depth of flavor. And, and this is what they use in Turkey. Um, and funny, you should talk about vegan options in particular. There's a, um, a a traditional dish from the part of Turkey, from Urfa or from southeastern Turkey, uh, which was historically made with raw meat. It's called chi kofta. Um, but the Turkish government, as part of a public health effort, uh, basically eliminated the raw meat version of the dish and replaced it with a bulgur wheat uh, alternative. But this pepper is a key ingredient yeah. in this sort of vegan fake meat uh, because it gives you some of that uh, rich, deep, almost meaty flavor. Um, and so you'll get these little, they look like meatballs, but they're made of tomato paste and, and bulgur wheat and urfa chili. Um, you get them wrapped in a lettuce leaf with pomegranate molasses as like a pretty mm. common street food in mm. Istanbul, but especially in southeastern Turkey. 
Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know about that. It's great. I feel like you've got a story like this for every single spice in yeah. your catalog. <laughs> um, well, we we spend a lot of time yeah. traveling and getting to know the cuisines and the countries that we're sourcing from. Uh, I'm a little obsessed with flavor. Sure, uh, I, hope so. <laughs> what? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. And so uh, you know, other. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, if like if if I came over to your place and you wanted to like really show off with you know some of the latest things that you've added or some of the favorite things that you sell what what kind of dish might that be and what would you what do you think you would i would use? i would make you taste the spices by themselves um the uh, i mean dishes obviously are ways to showcase spices but i don't think people taste enough of uh, taste independent spices often enough because mm. uh, you just get so much more intensity more of the flavor and different spices uh you extract the flavor in different ways, whether it's in water or in or in fat. Um, flavors will come out and they will interact with the other ingredients in different ways. But the first step is always to just taste the spices straight up, taste them in a, a fairly simple dish, something like scrambled eggs or roasted veggies. Um, ideally, a dish that you've cooked before, you know how it tastes without the spice and now cook it with the spice and see what that changes, see what that does to it. Um, you know, I, I think people often feel this uh, this resistance, they have to cook the cuisine that the spice is from in order to really enjoy it. And they can for sure, but they don't have to, uh, ingredients are ingredients are ingredients and, and mixing them together in interesting ways is, is like 90% of the fun of cooking. Yeah. One other fun, like just test to do is cook a dish, break it up into three ways and spice each one differently or keep one unspiced. And then you'll be able to see, I think like, honestly, the other day I was frying an egg and instead of grabbing the black pepper grinder, I grabbed the cardamom seed grinder. And I put on my egg and I was like, huh, that's actually pretty good. And so I think people also like, right, they, you you operate with some constraints. And I think like throw turmeric on eggs, throw like the Urfa chili, I think is really beautiful. Um, as a finishing spice, I like to like make like a roast cauliflower and the Urfa chili is right at home there, especially with some sumac. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's, to your point, I think it is, we see a lot of vegans using it to give that kind of savory umami to dishes. Mm -hmm. And so, but yeah, I think the taste test, like the challenge of like cook a thing three ways, and, and it's, it's a really fun way to see exactly how the spices change the flavor. And you'll see what you like and what you don't like. But it's very rare that you'll spice a dish and you'll be like, well, this has to go in the trash. <laughs> Most likely it'll be like, this is really interesting. And then it'll kind of inform your cooking. Yeah, totally. Totally. And you're right about the vegan like umami thing because, you know, yeah, we have miso. We have obviously soy sauce and then like the Bragg's aminos. We've got like the uh, various Chinese bean paste. I can't remember what, what's it called? Dobijang or something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. And then like Korean, um, oh man, I forget everything. But yeah, like- All, all the fermented delicious products. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's good to, it's, it's good to know about all of that. And I guess I'm curious about, I mean, so you're still, you're working together like in one uh, office slash apartment style thing. Yeah. What, what are your, what's your, what's the food like that you guys eat on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I think what's really just interesting is like, we, we, we reflect on this all the time. Like we, we work out of our own apartments, but one or two days a week, we'll crash one another's apartment as part of our bubble. Mm. Um, but I think that what's been kind of interesting is that we're like, wait, we can run a spice business from our apartments in New York mm. to send a truck to a farm in, you know, northern Vietnam or, you know, central Guatemala. 
you know, direct that truck to come in on a, to a plane, to a boat, to get packed, to get sterilized, to get tested, to get all the, you know, to, uh, to get shipped all the way to people's homes or restaurants. Like that still blows our minds that a business like this is possible right now. So just, yeah, you know, like we yeah. sit at our, at our desk typing emails and we're like, this, this is the result of all of this stuff. And it's been really crazy that that's where we are in the it's world. It's good that you're not evil because, you know, it <laughs> seems like you would be able to create quite the empire, the evil empire. <laughs> we, we might be making more money if, <laughs> right. right i saw i saw uh, i won't get into that all the, we, we we want to import other stuff from afghanistan especially from the hindu kush region where where the cumin comes from whenever it's legal but that but that's another story yeah. um but i i cook mostly vegan at home and or try to do mostly vegan vegetarian since the pandemic i brought more meat in because that's what i would get going out to restaurants but um i i love to like hummus baba ganoush i buy tahini by the by the gallon um, and, and I think roast veggies are just honestly like a, a really fun go-to, yeah. um, because I don't know, you take whatever you got, you toss it in some spices, you throw it in the oven and, yeah. and it, that's always so fun and satisfying for me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. My, my ideal, my ideal dinner is a million different things, tiny little quantities, uh, just sort of snacking on different things that taste different and trying, seeing how they go together. Uh, I, I just, I love strong flavors across the board. I was working out of Ethan's apartment and he's like, I'm just going to put something together. And he threw together Mapo tofu. Uh, oh, for dinner. the other Yeah. Night. And like three other dishes that I, I was like, I don't understand how you have the ingredients for this. I don't understand how you put this <laughs> off the top of your head. I, I have uh, a little bit simpler foods and I think that's what it's, it's kind of nice. fun to, to visit. Still, Ethan is still hosting the illegal supper club in his apartment, but it's usually now me and his wife. Yeah, it's just the truth. <laughs> <laughs> My dog begging for That sounds pretty legal, which is good. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's I'm, okay. I'm curious, like, as we start to sort of wrap it up, like, the, I'm, there's one thing that comes to mind, which is, like, are there any sort of, like, holy grails or, like, your white whale of spices that you haven't really figured out how to get, that you have dreams of? What, what might that be? There's a million things. Uh, I mean, I guess my white whale is always the thing that I haven't heard of or that I haven't tasted yet. Mm. Um, the challenge with something like that is always is the, is finding the market for it. Yeah. Is convincing a, a home cook to taste something that they've never tried before, never heard of before. Um, and that's really what we've been working on getting good at. Um, translating my kind of wacky idea about something that tastes good and I've figured out ways to incorporate it into my cooking, uh, but I cook very differently from most people. And so <laughs> translating that into the way that Ori is going to cook or anybody else is going to cook is tricky. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the thing we've just found that there's an incredible appetite, no pun intended, for the story. People want to know where their food is coming from. And it doesn't have to be a crazy spice that nobody has heard of that's super rare that, you know, has to be carried down from the mountains one peppercorn at a time. It's it's just bringing people into the process, talking about where their ingredients are coming from and why they taste the way they do. Um, so that's the white whale is really just just how to get better at that, how to how to bring people into the sourcing, how to make them care more, how to help them make their food taste better, which ultimately is what our business is supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, I don't know. The white whale, maybe the other white whale would be getting a whole bunch of people on an airplane, taking them to visit farms or bringing farmers together to, to meet each other. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, you know, farmers, even growing the same thing in the same country, often don't really communicate with each other. 
it's it's all a hub of an export or a processor and lots of spokes of individual farmers where farmers really would benefit from working together you know we help when we can taking pictures of tools that farmers use in Vietnam to harvest cinnamon and sending them to our co-op in Zanzibar so maybe they can design some similar tools but but the white whale really is would be I guess bringing farmers together to to compare notes to work more closely yeah, yeah. and and getting a instant translation <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I I personally think that it's it's really fun to to introduce somebody to a version of their of a spice that they have in their pantry it's a good answer. and that they're like whoa and I think the Royal Cinnamon did that in a big way. We were talking about a garlic for a long time where we're like garlic, like like ground powdered garlic, granulated garlic. Like it's always a shadow of what fresh garlic is and flavor and intensity and all that stuff. And then the cooperative in northern Vietnam brought this incredible, our purple striped garlic. It, mm. It's roasty. It's intense. It, it's it's so wonderful. And their ginger, same way. It's so spicy. I've had to cut down the ginger because it's. I made a chai with the ginger according to the recipe, and I, I, it was way too... Uh, Gingery. It was way too ginger. It was very <laughs> spicy. And so I think we've had some like successes with that. I'm really excited about people getting to know uh, the tomato powder, ground bay leaves as just a way more versatile version of, of the bay leaves. I would love to find an onion equivalent of the purple striped garlic powder. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we're still we're still trying to figure out, like we've had so many requests for Sichuan peppercorns or just in general, other types of peppercorns, um, even if it would be like the Timot peppercorn. And we just haven't haven't nailed that down quite yet, but but fingers crossed we'll be able to, you know, some of these things are like travel trips. Yeah. Like they're like, we just can't figure it out over email. It'll be figured out by standing on the farm. Yeah, that's so cool. And I'm yeah, I can imagine like all these different trips and all these different ways of just continuing to, you know, find, yeah, slightly more interesting onion powder or slightly more, you know, compelling yeah garlic. I really want to try this garlic powder now. Um, we, we just got a new shipment and just arrived oh. today, yesterday. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, and so what's next? I mean, obviously, you know, there's a million things to do and I'm sure you have a to-do list that's 25 items long and, and, you know, getting out of COVID is a whole new sort of horizon, I think, for everybody. But what, what's generally in the future for Bell App and Barrel? Uh, more spices, uh, more <laughs> interesting flavors. Uh, we... We have not wasted the last year uh, in terms of sourcing between you know the relationships that I mentioned earlier with the nutmeg farmer and the cinnamon farmer, nutmeg in Grenada and cinnamon in Sri Lanka. Um, we we have relationships that we had started prior to the pandemic, which are now we're now just uh, able to start bringing those shipments in. Um, we uh, we had not been a spice blending company before October. Uh, we made our first blends, uh, a legacy collection in honor of Floyd Cardoz, who passed away almost a year ago of from COVID. Um, we'd been working on those blends with him for about a year leading up to that. Mm. And when he passed away, his wife decided to continue the project as a, a memorial. Um, so we launched those in October. We have three more of his blends coming out later this year. Also working with a handful of other chefs to, to bring out, bring, bring, make some new blends. Um, some will be interesting versions of traditional blends and some will be kind of new and a little off the wall. Um, 
What else? Yeah. We're, we're working on, I, we want to help make it easier for people to cook with spices. We hear a lot of people saying, I don't know how to cook with spices, or this isn't mm. for me, or this is for more, more savvy cooks than myself. Mm. And we're like, absolutely not. And so we're working on a, on a booklet that kind of goes through uh, 12 techniques for how to incorporate spices in your cooking, from more basic techniques to more advanced techniques. And we're just trying to make sure, I think a lot of businesses kind of stumble when they get like a jolt of growth. And so like before we were just, you know, be able to handle everything. Something went wrong. Like we just emailed the three or four people the things went wrong and we'd be like, you're okay. And now that we're kind of growing a little bit more, we need to figure out how we keep that promise to our customers and how we make sure that stuff arrives in perfect shape on time, ideally ahead of time with extra goodies and surprises in there with samples of things that you weren't expecting. Like we want to keep making it a little bit magical to if anytime that you come and try one of our spices and shop, um, if you haven't noticed, all of our spices have tasting notes on the side that that some are serious and some are over the top. What, what do we got on the Urfa, Ethan? Oh, this is a Walk good us through the process for these tasting notes. All right, so I, I read the tasting notes. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have raisin, espresso, and summer night. It's, I don't know if you can see. Sorry, guys. And you're gonna get it. You're gonna get it when you open it. But like, we just try to try to make it fun and welcoming and open, so that even if there's like, hey, I've never heard of this, or I've never cooked with this, or this isn't something that's part of my, you know, pantry. We can be like, don't worry, we yeah. have everything you need to get it going. And we've had some success with our Facebook group, the Spice Forum. We have almost 4,000 exceptional home cooks that you post any question there, you're going to get 100 responses within a matter of hours. So oh, amazing. it's been kind of trying to find to create a community that says, oh, you're new here. Come on in. We're going to show you the ropes. And that's been really fun to find different ways that people can get their questions answered and, and learn and try stuff out and, and make it a lot easier that, to cook with fresh spices. Amazing. This is so cool. I'm so energized by you guys. And uh, I'm so I'm so happy, Ethan, that, you know, I, I saw the beginning of this company and uh, I probably didn't have any useful advice for you, but I was there at the beginning. And I'm, you know, I'm so I'm so happy I appreciate that, that you were even willing to sit down and talk to me. I don't know. I had this wacky yeah. idea. I'm remembering uh, it more and more now. Like we were sitting in a meeting room at ICE, I think. ICE. And, and yeah, and it was just this completely like brand new thing. I, I'm so yeah. happy that you've had so much success and it's so exciting that you're able to help people as well. And it's not just a extraction business. It's kind of like a giving back business as well. And that's, that's super cool. Um, last thing, like how can people find you? Uh, what, what can they buy online and, and how do they do that uh, from Burlap and Barrel? Yeah, our website is burlapandbarrel.com. Uh, that's where you'll find the widest selection. Uh, we do sell through some specialty retailers online and, and brick and mortar, but the widest selection is always going to be on our site. The best prices are always going to be on our site. Uh, and all the information that you could ever want about the farm and the farmer and where it comes from and why we work with them and what variety they grow and how it's different. Um, you, can, you can be as nerdy as you want, or if you just want really, really good cinnamon, we got you covered. And you can reach out to us. You're, you're, you'll get an email from one of us or one of our incredible customer support people that are all ex-forum members, still forum members, still cooks and all that stuff. <laughs> so, follow us on Instagram. Check out the Spice Forum on Facebook. And anyway, you'll, you'll, we're, we're not too far from any of the customers. So you're always able to reach us if you want to. Amazing. Thank you, Ethan, Ori. Thank you so much. And it's been great having you on the farm. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.